Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. In the end, we want to leave you with three or four cool, thoughtful bits about football. Today, I'm joined by Coach David Seymour. To the new Newcastle owners, please stop calling him. He is under contract with us, though there is a special break clause for West Ham. I am joined by Harshel Patel, the hardest working football analyst and break dancer I know. Finally, I am joined by Daniel Prock, a professional striker who will soon be making dreams come true as the USL resumes play in July. Our 009 will be in action soon. I'm host Chris Mumford, known as the Professor Bella Chow. In this pod, we share our cool things to know about the Premier League this week. Next, I'll ask the podsters vexing questions. We need answers. We discuss that awkward subject of who will be coming out of contract at the end of June or July. What will happen? Finally, I ask our podcasters to go all precog, a.k.a. Minority Report movie, and ask them to predict the rest of the season. Let's turn our attention to cool things to know this week. I'm going to start off with talking a little bit about what is analytics and how does it fit in. So analytics is, is commonly known as stats and numbers and maybe doesn't reflect what reality is. But I look at it a different way, and I think the rest of soccer is looking at it, or football is looking at it a different way. First of all, instead of sending scouts to 35 or 40 games, uh, the first generation of innovation is uh, taking video. Um, So then that same scout can watch 35 or 40 uh, clips worth of games in the same amount of time it would take for him to go travel and watch one game. So as a result, that scout becomes a lot more efficient. It's a force multiplier. So video analysis has been really important in the last few years. What's happening now is that next generation of analysis where we can aggregate the numbers and what takes someone to look at two hours worth of video, uh, an analyst can take a look at numbers that have come from the video and do quick sorts, which would take hours to look on video, they can run a sort in minutes. So the idea is that analytics does not replace um, the eye test face-to-face. It does not replace video analysis, but it's another tool in the toolbox. Um, And I think where football is moving to is we want to find out what reality is as quickly as possible, and we want to make adjustments and adapt because that's how teams and species thrive is that adaptation. So if we find out what reality is as quickly as possible, and if you are a manager or a coach or or even a fan that uses all those tools, I think you get to see reality in different ways. David, what's your take on that as well as what is the gold standard for uh, football analytics now? I think it's really interesting what you say about video analysis and obviously it makes things, as you say, much more efficient. I think at the same time, though, there's still the trade-off where seeing players live um, allows you to see the pitch 
throughout the whole time, it's very difficult to have a, a wide view for watching video analysis where you can see the entire pitch. Um, but also scouts will be looking at players' behavior before the games, after the games, um, when they're not on the ball, all those kinds of things as well, which are harder to see in video analysis. So as much as it is really useful, there are, it's important to have a balance. Um, I think when we, when we talk about, <clears throat> I know Daniele is going to move on to this as well, there, there are some, some things within analysis that are very basic that you need to just have a, a general grasp of. So I know we're going to talk about expected goals in a, in a little bit. And that would be defined. I mean, Harshaw made a point off, off camera earlier where he said that different websites have different definitions of how they work out what, you know, the expected goal value. But if you're, if you're unaware of what an expected or what expected goals are, it's essentially just dividing the pitch up into lots and lots of, of little, little um, like grids as such. And it's the probability of scoring from that part of the pitch. That's, that's the overall sort of like um, definition. So for example, the penalty spot is generally a, you get assigned a 0.75 expected goals or you've got a 75% chance of scoring from the penalty spot, which is the highest expected goal like value there is. Um, so that means three in every four shots from that location go in. So that's how they would work out the expected goals from different locations. Super. So analytics really is, it's basically an automation tool. Uh, so it creates synthetic time, uh, as one analyst described to me, as well as it's a force multiplier, meaning you can, you can use this to figure out what's working uh, in one league or with a certain type of player, and then you can apply it to other, way, other areas. So like technology and everything else in life, it is automating things and it is creating a full uh, force multiplier uh, effect. Harshel, can you give us some examples of how uh, XG and some surprises that we've seen um, this season so far? Yeah, absolutely. So in the Premier League, there's, there are two teams who have actually underperformed their expected goals tally for the season quite significantly. One of them is Sheffield United, the other is Everton. Now, Sheffield United are in seventh place in the table. They've done a lot better than everybody thought they would be doing. They're challenging for a spot in Europe. Everton, on the other hand, are down in 12th place under Carlo Ancelotti this season. They've um, underperformed to what most people would have thought, but they can still make a bit of a run and maybe get into the Europa League spots. But in general, they have underperformed. So the broader story is one team has outperformed its expectations from the season. The other team has not. But when you look at the story with regard to expected goals, both teams are scoring a lot less than the expected goals tell us. So um, if I look at Everton, for example, and before I get into that, so just to set a base, the league average, so the average expected goals for all the teams in the Premier League this season has been 41.46. And the expected goals per shot in the Premier League at the moment uh, is 0.12, which basically means that um, there's there's basically about less than 1% or 0.12 is the average value of a shot taken in the Premier League this season. Now, if you look at Everton, their expected goals tally has been 44.2, which is higher than the league's average, but they've only scored 37 goals. So they're underperform, underperforming it by about seven goals. And 
the reason for this is that that sort of underperformance hasn't spread out throughout the squad. The two highest scorers in the Everton squad, who are Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison, are actually performing in line or actually exceeding the expected goals for their individual expected goals tally. So, Calvert-Lewin has scored 13 goals. His non-penalty XG is 13.5. Richarlison has scored 10 goals in the league this season. His non-penalty XG is 7.7. So, those two are not really to blame for Everton's sort of overall underperformance as with regard to the XG. It's the rest of the goal scorers or the rest of the players in the Everton squad who haven't really lived up to their um, billing in terms of scoring goals. The likes of Theo Walcott, J.L.P. Sigurdsson, Moise Keane, Alex Iwobi have all scored a lot less than what the numbers would suggest that they should have. This is the reason why Everton are underperforming their XG. Whereas if we come to Sheffield United, it actually, as unfortunate as it is, it actually boils down to one player. So, Sheffield United have an XG of 40.01. They've scored 30 goals. So, that's a good 10 goals less than the XG would have you believe. Um, all, however, their XG per shot is 0.156. So, the, the average value of a shot taken by Sheffield United this season is a lot more than the average value of a shot in the entire league. So, why are they, they haven't they scored? Um, the short answer is the fact that their strikers have just not been up to the mark. David McGrath has missed 15 big chances in the league this season. He's fifth highest in the league for this. And he scored zero goals from an expected goals tally of 7.19. That basically accounts for the majority of Sheffield United's underperformance. Oli McBurney, who's also another striker who has played quite a bit for Sheffield United this season, has missed, has missed 10 big chances. He has four goals from, six, from an XG of 6.7. So just those two players have more or less... Uh, sort of uh, another reason for uh, almost all of Sheffield United's underperformance in front of goal this season. So it's basically a, the story with Everton is that while their two biggest goal scorers have scored more or as much as you would have expected them to, the rest of the squad has not backed them up. But with Sheffield United, it's been the fact that this, the guys leading the line haven't scored enough, haven't done well enough. And that's basically why they've underperformed. And this, it's only when you dive into the numbers that you can get this sort of detail out. Coach, how could you take that that information and, and apply that onto the pitch? I think if you uh, so, firstly, I think it's a great point from Harshal. And um, what's interesting with to put it in context, Sheffield United zero point one six one five six expected goals is the second highest in Europe's top yeah. five leagues. Only PSG have a higher expected goals per shot. So they are creating really good chances. But and Harshal was absolutely right. And if I'm being cynical, and if I was an agent who had an upcoming young European talent uh, who was a good finisher, I would be trying to sell them to Sheffield United as a stepping stone onto a next club because they're crying out for an elite finisher and we could see them go. And it's incredible to say Sheffield United perhaps underperforming. Um, I think if I was, so as a, from a coach's standpoint, yeah, you need to look, you need to break down why they're underperforming. So it's the obvious thing to look at the actual shooting, but I would be looking at movement I'd be looking at final touch before a shot or first touch before a shot. Those sort of things are huge in actually creating a, a realistic scoring opportunity. Super. Well, Daniele, let's, let's drill down a little farther on this. You are uh, mm. an actual striker. Um, <clears throat> give us your take on this and you know, what surprises are you seeing in terms of strikers in the league? So speaking of uh, elite finishers, we're going to first look at some individual strikers expected goals per 90 against their goals per 90. 
So we have uh, Arsenal's Aboma Young. He has an XG of 0.37 and goals per 90 of 0.62. So there is a 25, a 0.25 difference there. He's followed by uh, Man City Aguero. Aguero has a XG per 90 of 0.74 and a goal per 90 of 0.97. And obviously by uh, Leicester Vardy that has a uh, XG per 90 of 0.5 and he scored a 0.72 per 90. On the other side, we have uh, um, Bachuai who has an XG per 90 of 0.67. But he really disappointed in converting this XG per 90 into goals because his goals per 90 are only 0.29. And uh, I think he scored only one goal this season. Um, another two strikers who um, disappointed, I guess, the XG per 90 will be Firmino. He's got an XG per 90 of 0.44 and a goal per 90 of 0.28. And then we have Raul Jimenez with uh, an XG per 90 of 0.55 and actual goal per 90 of 0.45, which is striking to me because Jimenez has really impressed me this year. And uh, he's also such a hardworking player that uh, I kind of feel bad putting him in, the, in this category. Jimenez is, is a terrific, terrific talent and he's done phenomenally this season. Um, I think he's performing at the sort of upper echelons of his potential. His, if we combine both his expected goals and assists, um, he has 21.14, which is the highest in the Premier League. And if we put him in context with the top five leagues, uh, only Mbappe, Immobile, Werner and Lewandowski actually have a higher expected goals and assists, which means he has a higher expected goals and assists than even Lionel Messi. Now, the different, why wow. I'm saying he's performing at the upper echelons is that all of those players that I've just mentioned are all outperforming their expected goals and assists, whereas actually Jimenez is slightly underperforming. He's got 19 goals and assists um, in the league. So um, that's why I would say he's, he's probably right at the top of his game right now. So what I think is really interesting about this is, uh, you know, in, in data, we talk about separating the signal from the noise, and then we have to take that signal and be able to tell a story so people can change their workflows or their flows on the pitch, right? So, uh, Daniela, I think those are really good commentary. You know, it'd be fascinating to hear what their individual coaches are trying to either make those adjustments if they're underperforming or continue to do whatever the folks are doing that are overperforming, right? Because at the end of the day, these are probabilities. These are expected, right? So if you did this a hundred times, you're, you're going to come up with different outcomes. You're going to have a narrow range, which is going to happen often and often. But to me, I think we in the podcast and in general want to figure out how do we find the signal and the noise? How do we take that signal and tell it to a story that someone can say on the pitch where players understand how to change outcomes? Because I think I think it's and, so important to provide context to data. And I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they just look at statistics and go, oh, that player's good, or that player's not good. But you need to get used to reviewing footage and looking at the, the, the smallest details in the footage to really understand why something is the way it is, rather than just accepting it for a stat, for a number on a page. 
And uh, I'll say two things about the expected goals. First, there are so many variables, right? Uh, how the ball bounces, who do you have in front of you, next to you, how far away from goal. And then the second thing I wanted to say about Firmino and Jimenez that, yes, they, in terms of numbers, I guess they underperform their expected goals, but they do so much work for, for their team. They run around forever, really. Um, they create a lot of chances. Firmino, we know he always, he often acts as a, as a false nine. So it's not really, um, like you said, David, context is, is just massive. We have to put these numbers in, in context because um, I'm sure that Klopp would not trade Firmino just because he's got a, uh, a lower goals per 90 that expected goals per 90. And, and keep in mind the sensitivity to the numbers. If, if, if he had put two more goals uh, or three more goals in so far this season, I would imagine his numbers are, are, could be well above expected goals and we'd be talking about how, how well he's doing. So, and I do think that roles are really important. I, 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 David, I love your comment about context is everything. Speaking about context, I do want to give fair play uh, in this podcast. We've been talking a lot about strikers. I want to get back to my favorite topic, which is goal. <laughs> um, so, um, so the range of goals on goalkeepers of the top eight teams is 11 to 36. Guess who has the least shots on goal against them and the most shots on goal against them? Who wants to guess that? Is just the Premier League or all? Premier League. Premier League. Allison. Allison is probably the fewest shots on target. Okay. And the most? Uh, Dubravka, I think. Right? Yeah. Of the top six here, it's actually. Oh, apologies. Sorry, the oh, top okay. eight. It's, it's Leno. Uh, oh, my guy. <laughs> so, uh, so Allison uh, uh, had 55 shots, and Leno had almost three times as many shots as him. Hmm. That's not really a commentary on Leno. It's more a commentary on how bad Arsenal's defense has been. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Um, so uh, the range of goals between the top eight, the goalkeepers of the top eight teams is 11 to 36, almost 3x. Now, of course, unsurprisingly, Allison is, is number one with the least number of goals. And Leno has 36, which is the most. And I just can't get over that. Poor Leno has to do three times as much work uh, as, as Allison. With his legs. <laughs> <laughs> with his legs, uh, which which we know you're a huge fan of, and probably because you dislike that greatly when you're trying to store, score on keepers and they they sweep you. But um, when you look at goals compared to expected goals, guess who the three best performers are of those eight teams? Anybody? Is Alex McCarthy up there? No. I don't think he'd be uh, in the top eight, though. You've only looked at the top eight teams in the league, right? That's correct. That's, yeah, ones that are that so, are basically Europa and Champions League. Okay, apologies. So I'd that. say Allison, probably Kasper Schmeichel, and then, I don't know, I don't think they would sneak in there. But I don't know. Chris Persav on misery. Probably know. Dean yeah. Henderson. All right. Probably the, Dean Henderson. So the short of it is, um, Allison more or less is it, has performed as expected, right? He's coming in right around 100 hundred percent of, of, of what his expected goals are. Um, third place, uh, believe it or not, is Leno. He had expected goals of 43. Uh, <laughs> he only had 36 actual goals. 
Where is Chris Darwin on this? Where is Chris Darwin on this? <laughs> so he saved an unexpected number of goals of seven. That's a pretty significant number. So, so the, the folks that are paying the bills at Arsenal, they're getting good money out of, out of Leno. Number two on the list is Casper Schmeichel. Uh, he has 35 expected goals, which is a big number um, considering where Leicester is, and there's only been 28. So he saved uh, basically 80, 81%. Um, Chris, so, can I take a guess at the last one now that you've gone through it? Well, and to give Schmeichel credit, he also has a whopping 87, uh, seven unexpected goals. Number one on the list, uh, which uh, I think we've come to, is, uh, is Henderson uh, from our good friends at Sheffield United. He was expected to have 30 goals, um, and only 22 have been scored on him. So he is, he is performing 25% better than expected, and he saved an unexpected goals of eight, which I, I would argue would make him close to an MVP of, uh, of Sheffield United in terms of how many people are preventing uh, a goal is still a goal a created goal is equals a prevented goal as far as I can tell so fascinating story I still hold by my view that Schmeichel um, uh, deserves the, the best of pre-COVID uh, largely because Leicester is in the Champions uh, League run and uh, and Sheffield United is in the Europa so, um, and maybe next week uh, we'll talk about distribution. Any comments from the peanut gallery? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised by Leno, so that was interesting. But um, I, you know what? When I said I kind of guess, I was going to go with Lloris. Have we counted Tottenham in that sort of big eight, as it were? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I did not, and I readily admit that Lloris would move up the charts pretty significantly. Okay. He has saved Tottenham from a miserable season to just a bad season. <laughs> uh, that'll be something we'll talk about in, in subsequent podcasts. But sure. props to Larice, who most people last year thought he was done, right? Yeah, I did. I must admit, I thought I thought he was coming towards the end. So fair play to him. He's he's been a real uh, real performer. Mm -hmm. So enough about goalkeeping. Um, even though I'm I'm crazy about it, um, I want to start the next segment, which is basically what we call. Let me ask you a question. Um, so I want to figure. I want you to help me figure out the signal and the noise here. What's real and what's not? Daniele, question number one: Is mm -hmm. Leicester the real deal? Are they going to be able to hold their spot in the Champions League or not? Well, Chris, the short answer is yes, and I'm going to tell you why. When you get to the final stretch of the season. Um, you're in the locker room and players look up to those teammates that have been there before. If we look at Leicester roster now, you have players like Schmeichel, Chilwell, Albrighton, uh, Vardy. They won the 2015-2016 uh, EPL season, so they know what it means to be there. They know how to not go through emotions when the uh, season is about to end and you have to clinch, in this case, uh, a Champions League spot. Um, and also, if we look at numbers of Leicester this season, they have scored uh, two goals per game. And that is higher than the 2016 season when they scored 1.7 goals per game. 
they are doing slightly worse than the the championship um, uh, season of 2016 defensively. Uh, so now they've considered 1.03 goals per game versus the 0.95 of that magic year. Uh, and they also scored more on counterattacks now uh, than the the season of 2016. Right now they have seven goals on uh, off of counterattacks versus the six of 2016. But let me tell you something. Uh, as we talked about before, Liverpool and Man City, they just raised the bar uh, for, the, for the top teams. If you think about Leicester in 2016, they won the league with 81 points, followed by Arsenal with 71. And last year, Man City won with 98, and Liverpool were runners up with 97. So after all of this reasoning, yes, Chris, Leicester is a real deal. I'm, I'm going to jump in here, and I'm going to respectfully disagree with you there, Daniele. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they are more volatile in terms of results than a lot of teams around them. They've won five games this season in the Premier League by one goal, and they've lost five games in the Premier League this season by one goal as well. So I think those are games which could have gone either way. Could have, it could have potentially been a, a draw, or the result could have gone to the other team. Um, and if we look at expected points, which we mentioned last week when we talked about City and Liverpool, Leicester are actually down in sixth in the expected points table with 46.7 points. Um, that's just under seven points less than what they actually have. I'm going to say something. When, um, you know, when, uh, when it comes down to, to those games, when a team knows how to win, they will win and they will not care about expected points or oh, was I supposed to win was I supposed to lose so uh, I think that the experience of the of that core group of uh, those four or five players that I mentioned it will help a lot with uh, with winning games even if it's just by one goal if it, that means scoring one on counter-attack and then defending uh, if you have to to bag those three points uh, I think they will I, I think they're a top, I think they're a top six team don't get me wrong but I just don't think they're a top three team I think they've outperform their expected goals this season and they've outperformed their expected goals again. So it shows that they're playing really well. They've been in great form throughout the season, but it wouldn't surprise me if they don't have significant investment in the summer, which I doubt there'd be many teams with. It wouldn't surprise me to see them around sort of seventh or eighth next season, particularly given their involvement, likely involvement in the Champions League. Well, I'm focused on the here and now, and I'm going to disrespectfully disagree with both of y'all. You know, <laughs> uh, the truth is, is that three quarters of that team wasn't there during the championship run. Uh, you've, uh, that being said, I've got one word for all y'all, and that's Vardy. Um, you know, it seems like Vardy needs one or two chances to convert those to goals. Uh, and um, I, I think that Casper uh, Schmeichel um, does – provide a leadership to an otherwise pretty young team. They're one of the youngest teams in the EPL. Um, and I like their long-term prospects, but I'm focused on the here and now. I think they stay at number three because they keep doing what they're doing. And quite honestly, I, I think the other guys end up uh, stumbling along the way. But hey. let's go ahead and move to the next topic, uh, which, David, speaking of stumbling, uh, will they recover from their, their big stumble this year, which is Arsenal? Give us your take on Arsenal. Yeah, I think Arsenal's a big project. I think they need a, a lot of investment. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily going to come. I think um, they get, I think there's a good chance that they lose Aubameyang, 
Uh, is, is his contract up this summer? Or is Not this summer. I think it's up next summer. That's correct. So he's probably gonna. So they need to make that sort of decision to sell him or not this summer. Yeah, and they 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 may do what they did with Van Persie, where they take that sort of cut price deal. But at the same time, if they haven't got the money to replace those goals, for me personally, I'd be tempted just to keep him for an extra year. Yeah. And a lot of noises are that Lacazette is also going to be on the way out. So it's a time of real overhaul. The David Luiz experiment didn't work, and that's going to finish this summer as well. I think that Arteta just needs a summer of putting his ideas into place. It's a relatively different style to what we've seen from uh, when they were with Unai Emery. I think they're looking to progress the ball a little quicker than they did under Emery. And I think Arsenal fans are willing to be patient with Arteta, but I would say to a point, and I think that the more time that goes on, the more people realise what a phenomenal job Arsene Wenger was doing at Arsenal. And um, I think that was a real sad way to see how how that ended. We spoke about it a couple of weeks as well. Now, Arsenal, they're in ninth place in the league right now. But actually, the only teams that are below them on expected points are Palace, West Ham, Norwich, Newcastle, Bournemouth and Villa. That's not really the company that you'd expect to see Arsenal in. So, if anything, you know, Arteta should be commended for, I guess, actually having them outperform where perhaps they should be. But it'd be an interesting summer to see what happens at the Emirates, they are going to need to bring players in. And we've said this so many times, we don't really know what's going to happen this summer in the transfer window because we don't know what clubs are going to have money. But having seen how sort of reluctant to spend Arsenal have been, even when they have had the money, I don't see them bringing too many players in. And David, as a player, I'm definitely echo what you said about um, Arteta having needing time to transmit his concepts to the player. Yeah. As a player you really need to work with a coach for, uh, for quite a long time before you really assimilate what he wants from you. So like it happened with, uh, with Guardiola and Man City, even with Liverpool, we're really seeing the results in this past couple of years. So as a player, I can definitely um, say that you need to train a lot and you need to spend a lot of time with your coach before you really do what he is asking you. And uh, I'm sure that you can, uh, you can say that for, for coaches as well. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, unfortunately, the way football is, particularly the Premier League, is that managers don't get a great deal of time. Now, let's, let's just say Obama Ying and Lacazette leave this summer. Let's just say that. I think that they ha- still have key pieces that they can build a team around. I think Martinelli, I wasn't on the Martinelli train at first. But you know what? I'm fully on board with a first-class ticket now. Uh, I think he's an excellent player and someone that they need to build that team around. Guendouzi is good. He's not consistent. Um, however, he's still young. He's got plenty of potential. I think, um, I think there's going to be a little bit of um, interest in Torreira this summer because I'm not sure if he's going to be a, a significant starter under Arteta, particularly as Arteta's put so much faith in Xhaka. So we could see personnel changes throughout, but I still think there are pieces in that team to build around. Kieran Tierney, the last one I'll mention, Kieran Tierney has all the potential to be an outstanding left back, but I'm concerned about that shoulder injury that has just bugged him since he's been in the Premier League. I was at the West Ham Arsenal game where he did it again just after coming back. And from my playing days as well, I've seen enough shoulder injuries where you know when someone's got a serious issue there. So that's one to keep an eye on. I don't know if he's a long-term uh, option for Arsenal left, but I don't know if he's going to be able to stay fit. I tell you what, what I'm vexed by is 
uh, last year the needs were screaming help in defense Mm -hmm. and they went out and and spent a bunch of money on Pepe. Uh, we know how that's come along. Um, and I think Pepe will get better. There's no question, but why not take that money they spent on him and spend 35 million on two quality backs? It's an issue. They did, they did spend. Sorry, go on David. It's sorry. I'm just gonna say it's an issue Arsenal have had for years. We're not properly investing in in centre backs, and um, I mean, Roth, you know, Rob Holding, for example. I don't think that he is a player of that quality. I think that's a, a player who's been there for too long without showing enough promise. And I, th- I think he's probably a Premier League centre back. But do you know what? If he's available this summer, you will still not have Premier League clubs queuing up at Arsenal's door to sign Rob Holding, which tells you enough about him as a player. Right. Good. To be fair though, I mean, Arsenal did spend, I forget how much they spent, what was it about 20 or 30 odd million on William Saliba and they loaned him back to St. Etienne and he's going to come in in the summer and he's very highly rated. So they got him in, they got Pablo Mari in on loan in January, which is going to be made into a permanent deal and he's a left-sided centre-back. So they have two very young, potentially very good centre-backs who will be um, available for the next season as well. So you've got Pablo Mari and William Saliba. Um, and they can raise some cash by selling Socrates and uh, David Luiz as well, I guess. Uh, although, no, David Luiz is out of contact. But they'll probably, Mustafi and uh, Socrates, one if not both of them are going to be out. I don't like so, Kolasinac either, I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't seen enough from Kolasinac to, to suggest that he's a top six top. Arsenal, Arsenal should be aiming to be a top four club. Kolasinac is not a top four player, I'm sorry. I'm not right. Well, good. Well, let's switch gears. Harshal, tell us your take on, on Man U. What, where are they now? Um, their prospects? I think they're a bit better in terms of prospects. United might be a bit better off right now than what the situation was pre-COVID because Paul Pogba and Marcus Rashford are back and they will be available to Solskjaer for the last eight or nine odd games. And that does bring a lot of quality into the team. United were really struggling um, when Rashford got injured. A few players did step up. Bruno Fernandes coming in in January has helped a lot in terms of the creativity. But there was a bit of a goal-scoring void that was uh, left when Rashford got injured. But he's back. He's apparently fit and firing in training and all of that. So, you've got Martial, you've got Rashford up front. Um, Mason Greenwood has done well whenever he's played this season. Um, So... The goal scoring is there, potential is there, and then you have the potential of Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba playing, you know, in tandem in midfield. So United could just put together and to be honest, this is the 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 remainder of the season is literally going to be like a fresh season, right? I mean, the, uh, all the uh, form and, all, and the way you've played in the previous 29 odd games is not going to matter. It's basically a mini season of um, nine games now. So United, I think, have the players now we basically could put together a run and make it into the top four. And I mean, we, there could be a case where United, even if they finish fifth, could finish, play in the Champions League because of City's uh, uh, two-season ban. If that does get ratified, uh, United could still make it to the Champions League, but, uh, being where they are. But they're just three points behind Chelsea. They're eight points behind um, Leicester. So with nine games to go, if they can put together a run with the guys that are coming back into the team, I think they have a good chance of making it into the top four. Good, um, David. What, what's what's your? I, I think we're all in in large 
agreement on that, right? I mean, I, I think the open question is the Pogba uh, Fernandez uh, pairing. Yeah. How much time will it take for them to work? Because that's going to be the real engine room there. Uh, yeah. And really, how long is it going to take for Rashford to to get quote fit uh, and just have the confidence on making making the runs he made in the past? Given you know backs are just so doggone tricky. Uh, I think the, the the Pogba, you're absolutely right. The Pogba Fernandez relationship is key, and as we've said, even with like the managers um, giving them time, it's the same thing with players. It's going to take time to gel, without a question. But what you have is you have two world class talents there. I would like to see Pogba played in a in a pivot role with Fernandez, and I think McTominay in front as a ball winner. I think that you need the ball winner with those two to allow them to both dictate the play how they can. So I think we talk about those two, but I think McTominay is incredibly important for getting the best out of those two. So I'd be looking to see Solskjaer operate with a sort of midfield three that are, I mean, Pogba, Pogba's technique is just out of this world. And I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing him play, hopefully in a deeper role and allow him to orchestrate the play, switching the ball. Um, you can really get the United wing uh, fullbacks to push up higher, almost into wingback roles. If Pogba decides to maybe drop in between the United centre backs, so I'd be interested to see how Solskjaer uses Pogba. And again, with Rashford, I think with with any of these players, is that form goes out the window, and because it's it's essentially a new season, so it's going to take him time to get back to where he was. He needs a consistent run of games, and unfortunately, we're at the business end of the season where. Perhaps if he's not initially performing straight away, he may not get that that run of games that he needs to play himself in. Every point right now matters. So, um, it, it, Solskjaer will be evaluating this throughout the training. I, I read as well this week that teams will have the option to organise friendlies before the season starts. Um, I don't know if that's already happening or not. I guess we won't really. That is happening. I mean, I think um, I think it was Chelsea. Ars- Arsenal. Arsenal played against Charlton. Yeah, Arsenal. Arsenal okay. had a. Uh, had a behind uh, closed doors friendly against Charlton and they beat them 6 0. Eddie and TTS scored a hat trick. Yeah. I'd be so, surprised if they release all of the information about that, though. I wonder if there are some teams that are having friendlies without actually talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, could be. So let's switch gears to Tottenham, David. What, what do you, there, there are a couple of injuries that, that folks are coming back. There's a fall, you know, a leaky back, a back line. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously they're going to have Hummin Son back, which is really important for them. I think that's going to immediately fill the attacking void, which was missing for so much of the second half of the season. Um, it's, again, another difficult one where a manager's come in, they haven't had a full summer to implement their ideas. So people are quick to hound... I think people are quicker to hound Mourinho than they are any other manager just because of who he is. Um, <laughs> I'm interested to see what happens with Spurs uh, for the rest of the season. I think now that they kind of had a mini preseason, you might see some of the uh, different approaches that Mourinho spoke about when he first joined. We may see them look to uh, be a little bit more positive. I think Ndombele, when he plays, is excellent, but there's those fitness issues. I don't know if Mourinho trusts him fully yet. Interested to see what Endombele does towards the end of the season. But I'm still not, I'm not expecting fireworks from them. I think that they'll be looking to finish, obviously, top half. Uh, try, they'll be trying to push into those European places for sure. I'm not sure if they necessarily will. So I think that Spurs fans need to be patient. See, this is a transition. 
give Mourinho the summer, see what happens next summer. Now, uh, sorry, next season. I know a lot of people don't want to give Mourinho time, but it's just because of the divisive personality. Danielle, what, what's your take on, uh, on the striker situation there and coming back from uh, injury? Sorry, I was going to say about Tottenham that from a locker room perspective, uh, you have two things going on. First off, you have one competition only to focus on. That's the league because we know that Tottenham was uh, um, knocked out by, by Leipzig. And then you have to save faces, both the players and Mourinho. They, they went from uh, playing a Champions League final to not even making the Europa League, maybe, according to their position. So saving faces is going to be a big motivating factor going into this, uh, this last stretch of, uh, of nine or ten games. And then uh, in terms of coming back from injuries, um, it's always tough. But I feel like all players are in the, in the same situation of coming back from a long break. So maybe in terms of hurricane, that's not going to be as big of a, uh, of a difference maker. It's, maybe it's not going to be in his head as much because um, even the other players, right, are coming off of a two or three months uh, hiatus. So I think that, uh, that Kane will be fine. Okay, good. Well, let's switch our attention uh, to Sheffield United. Harshel, what's your take on are they the real deal or not? They have been the surprise of the season, I think, in the Premier League as far as um, the, the entire season is concerned. Because I, mean, I don't think anybody could have thought that they were up in seventh and they've been discussed and dissected to no end, even on our podcast and everywhere else on our website. Um, I think there's a bunch of articles as well that you'll find which break down on Sheffield United play. So all of that has been discussed. But I think at least for this season, they will manage to hold on where they are because just because it's it's the it's the value of being such a well-drilled and well-coached side that they are um, more than the sum of their parts. I mean, you look at this, first of all, I think you can predict their starting 11 for almost any game and you'll be spot on 9 out of 10 times. They've got Sanderberg in, in January and that's the only thing that sort of shook up the lineup with John uh, Lundstrom dropping out and Berg taking his place in midfield. But that's about the only change that has happened in that lineup throughout the season. Otherwise, you can more or less name their uh, side uh, consistently for the entire season. And that sort of, that obviously breeds familiarity that allows them to uh, have certain patterns of play that are well-established because of the same players who are playing with each other week in, week out. And it's, uh, those drills have been worked on in training. So they know how to progress the ball. They know what they need to do to progress the ball. For example, even in terms of defensive uh, organization, just the value of playing with the same players um, week in, week out allows you to develop that understanding and that organization. So, and as I said, they are an extremely well-drilled outfit. They are more than the sum of their parts. So, this extended break has obviously give, would have given them some time off. But now that they're back in training, I think uh, Chris Wilder will be able to get them up to speed really quickly because they have that sort of base of being a good side in terms of their tactical understanding and the way they play already. So, I don't think there'll be a lot of um, stuff there for them to catch up on in terms of the tactical and the men, uh, side of things. Obviously, physically, everybody is playing catch up right now. Yeah, I would say my take is... I am a great feel-good story. I'm skeptical, but seeing how their goalkeeper has way overperformed and I see some potential regression back to the mean, I just see their offense, if they're so 
underperforming, they're going to regress back to the mean and they're going to more than offset that. So I don't think they'll make a serious run to Champions League, but I think they'll hold their spot in Europa and it'll be a great story uh, that we can we can tell that not just the big money teams uh, make it to uh, to Europe. You know what, though, Chris? If, if they if they do hold their position, then they are one hundred percent the real deal because they've got difficult games in the run end to the end of the season. They've still got to play Wolves, Chelsea, Leicester. Um, I think United still, maybe Arsenal as well. They've got some difficult games to play. I think Tottenham. There, that's a difficult run in. So, yeah, I mean, if they're there. By the end of the season, then wow, fair play to them. And I think we speak about Chris Wilder. Harshal was just saying, you know, he'll get them up to speed. And Wilder is a shoe in for manager of the season. And I think when you look at the players that Sheffield United have got, that perhaps other teams have neglected him in previous years. Um, the, the the three that come to my head initially: Chris Basham, Oliver Norwood, and this Mooset. Three players that he's got performing excellently for them this season. So. Um, yeah, I mean, they've got one head of a manager, but I think that it'll be interesting to see how they manage that tough running. Hey, you just mentioned Wolves. Are they the real deal? Are they going to have to do what it takes to stay in Europa? And could they pop into champions? I, do you know what? I think if you're, um, if you're someone listening to this podcast right now who maybe doesn't have a Premier League team yet, then if you're looking at how well run these teams are, Wolves have got to be right up there. I think their yep. recruitment has been outstanding. Their coaching is outstanding. Um, I love from a fan's perspective that they have respected their fans and given the Europa League a go. That's what every Wolves fan would have wanted to have seen. And the fact that they're still there and thereabouts um, right now suggests that they've actually got a lot more squad depth than perhaps we gave them credit for at the beginning of the season. Um, I, think, I think that Wolves are a very strong team. They've actually got a slightly easier running than some of the other teams around them. They still want to play some big teams for sure. But um, yeah, I'd be willing to say, I, I think that Wolves will be there in their abouts. We spoke about Raul Jimenez um, earlier and he's just one of a couple of outstanding individuals they've got. Uh, Ruben Neves is another player who I'm a big fan of. I'm, I'm sure Harshal is as well. Um, and Harshal, what what's your take on Nevers as a player? Do you think that he's a player that could potentially play higher up? He's he's already played higher up. Higher up. I mean, he he's, he came to Wolves from Porto. He was captain at Porto at I think what nineteen or twenty years of age. He's had he's played in the Champions League. He's captain Porto in the Champions League before he came to Wolves. He's played for Portugal at um, I think he uh, played at the at the previous Euros as well. And even if not, he's had enough experience with Portugal as well. So he's definitely a player who can play at the Champions League level. I think it was a massive surprise for everyone when he did end up at Wolves. And obviously, you've got the whole um, Gestifut and Jorge Mendes connections there, which have got him there. But that's not to say that he's not performed. He's done extremely well for Wolves, both in the Championship and now that they are in the Premier League. So, I'm, guys, I'm a question. huge, huge fan of Ruben Neves. Question for you guys. Will Wolves be afraid of heights during this, this right. final stretch? Afraid of heights? Like not being... Uh, used to being up there, will they suffer from uh, from the lack I mean, of experience? Maybe they finished seventh last year. So what's up? They, they finished seventh last year. So yeah, but we we're, were talking about making a run for a Champions League spot. How will that? How will that play out? I think they've got some. Play, I think they've got enough individual experience in that side uh, um, to, 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 to got, become yeah. where they are. And I think 
I think I, I 100% see what you're saying there, but I just think that although perhaps the side aren't used to, let's say, going on a deep run in Europe and consist, consistently you know, being in the qualification spots, I think that if you look at individual personnel, there is enough quality that have had the experience of being involved in teams that are, that are in that kind of battle on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, good. Well, Harshel, I want to spend a few minutes on notable out-of-contracts, um, really potential dis- difference makers that are, that are going to be done. And quite honestly, they're going to have to sign them for at least a few weeks at the very least. Um, what, can you give us kind of a quick uh, survey of what's, who the teams and who the players are that we have to keep in mind? Yeah, so um, if our listeners are not aware, look at, at, at present, players whose contracts are running out on 30th of June, um, clubs have up till 23rd of June to agree short-term extensions with those players to allow them to finish this season. So there are a bunch of players, obviously, who are out of contract at the end of the season, who clubs are trying to sign up so that they can continue till the end of the season. But it's also a question of whether they will end up getting one-year or two-year deals and stay at the clubs they are at. So, for example, you've got David Luiz at Arsenal, who is being widely reported as that Arsenal will let go of him. And that will be a very expensive one year that he's had. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a year, right? Luiz came in in the summer. Yeah. And with the agent fee and with the transfer fee that was paid and the salary, I think Arsenal would have spent north of 10 or 11 odd million on him this year in terms of the transfer, the agent fee and the salary. And that's a pretty expensive um, for a player of that age and who they're now going to probably let go of. Um, other notable ones, um, you've got Ryan Fraser at Burnmouth who said publicly that he was unsettled this year and which is why his performance levels have dropped off. He was someone who was linked to Arsenal at the beginning of this season. That move didn't happen. He's not played well this year, but now he's literally got like a nine-game mini-season to prove himself because it doesn't look like Burnmouth are going to offer him a new deal so he might, if he can get a better deal somewhere else. Um, a lot of the Burnley players are out of contract actually. You've got the, the, the likes of Sam Francis, Charlie Daniels, um, Jordan Ibe. They're all out of, out of contract and you don't know if Burnley will offer them long-term deals, if not the short-term deals to finish off the season. Chelsea are another um, example where William Pedro, two of their wingers, who've picked up a lot of the slack this season. I mean, I say slack in terms of playing time. Nobody is really... Um, replaced Eden, Eden Hazard but in terms of playing time those two have played a lot but again the two players who look like they're out on their way out of the club especially because Chelsea have got Hakim Ziyech in for the summer they've got most probably got Timo Werner in as well so they've, they're refreshing the squad William and Pedro are both uh, more than 30 years of, uh, old so they look like they're going to be out um, Everton I think Leighton Baines has been offered a one-year deal, so he's going to stick around. But they've got two very high owners, Kupo Martina and Gumanias. Both of them combined make over hundred thousand pounds a week, and probably going to be out of the uh, out of uh, a, a club in the summer. Um, Liverpool. The headline is Adam Lallana. He's been a, a, a good part of the squad they've had for about seven years now. Not played as much as they would have liked because of injuries, but he's chipped in a lot of times when they've needed him. He's a very popular member of the squad. So he is definitely getting an extension till the 30th of June. It doesn't look like he's going to be around for next season. City, you've got David Silva who's out of contract. And you don't know yet whether he's going to stick around for next season. I think he did say that he's going to leave. But he might just be persuaded to stick around for another season. He will obviously get a deal till the end of the season. But I, I, 
I personally would like to see him have another full campaign in the Premier League to be sort of his swan song because he's been one of the best players in the league over the last 10 years. Um, Newcastle have Andy Carroll and Matty Longstaff out of contract. I think there's, there's bargains to be had here though, Harshal. Yeah, exactly. If you go through the list, there's a lot of players out there who are, are very good bargains on free transfers. John Lindstrom. There are, there are, if you, particularly if you're like, let's say, you're a lower half Premier League team looking to break into the top half, there are some good players that would be that would immediately benefit you, um, but also squad players too. I mean, we talk about, let's say, Kiravella from Liverpool, who hasn't really had much of a look, in, but I actually rate quite highly. Um, you just mentioned Matty Longstaff, and the rumours are that I think Udinese have put in a crazy uh, contract offer to him, which would make him the highest earner at Udinese. But if you're a cynic, you'll realise that it's Watford using Udinese to get an end-of-contract deal, uh, and then Udinese right, will yeah. probably send him over to, to Watford. Speaking, so, speaking of that, actually, I forgot. Burnley, Jeff Hendrick is out of contract. There are rumours of AC Milan in for him. Danielli, any thoughts? Really? I did not know yeah. that. There have been a lot of rumours going around recently that AC Milan are seriously interested in getting Jeff Hendrick in from Burnley. And that's one of the most bizarre rumours ever. ever. And it the does last look like it has legs. Ngakia, the young right-back from West Ham, West Ham. Yeah. broke into this, the team this season. He, he, his contract's running out because, I mean, he, I think he was only offered a one-year deal last summer because they were pretty sure they were going to let him go. Um, I think that's and the he's just coming I in, could yeah. be wrong. But, I mean, he's had... Since he's come in, I think he's had one of the highest defensive duel win percentages per 90 or at least defensive duels per 90 um, since he's been playing in, in the league. So I think that he's a little bit of an unknown. But the, the other one that I was going to mention for Spurs is Tanganga, who still hasn't been offered a, a contract that's been highly impressive for him. Or I think he's been offered a contract that he hasn't accepted. Either way, it's not resolved. So there could be bigger teams circling around him, particularly those that need to fulfill their, you know, Homegrown quotas. Homegrown, yeah. So I'd like to go ahead and switch gears to our segment called the precog segment, uh, which is we ask y'all to map out and tell us the story of how the rest of the season is going to play out. Daniele, can you tee us off on that? Yeah, I would like to say something about Chelsea because we haven't talked about Chelsea so far. Um, Lampard is a winner, so I will go ahead that he will. And I'm going to say that he will clinch a Champions League spot. As I said before, I value a lot having people in the locker room who have been there, who can offer guidance and leadership. Uh, also, I'm a fan of his uh, proactive football. And uh, David, I'm going to be honest, I looked at uh, West, uh, the West Ham schedule for the final games. You're actually in good <laughs> shape. So, uh, not to jinx it to you, but uh, you're, you're going to stay in the, in the Premier League. <laughs> I've I've always thought you knew what you were talking about. Excellent, excellent take. <laughs> Beautiful, um, Harshal. What's your take on how? What's your precog on on the rest of the season? What's going to happen? Um, I think uh, obviously Leicester. I think Liverpool, Leicester, and City are going to stay where they are. Um, it's going to be a real fight, in my opinion, between Chelsea and United <clears throat> for. Uh, the fourth spot and it might not matter obviously because even if you finish fifth you could play in the Champions League next season but um, I can see United giving Chelsea a bit of a run they've done well from an expected points of view uh, an expected points point of view as well I mean United are fourth in the expected points table although they are behind Chelsea there 
So I think United could give Chelsea a bit of a run and that could be an interesting battle that we see. But other than that, lower down the table, Wolves, Sheffield United, I think will hold on. I don't think Spurs and Arsenal will be able to climb up, up ahead of them. So I think Wolves and Sheffield United will keep their Europa League spots and down at the bottom. I want to see how Everton do because I'm really interested to see how Carlo Ancelotti manages to get uh, a tune out of that squad. They've got some really good players in there. They've got a couple of players coming back from injuries. So they could make a bit of a run. I don't think, I mean, it, it would take a lot to get them to Europa, but uh, they could make a decent run. And in terms of relegation, uh, Norwich, Villa, and probably Watford, I'd say, because uh, Watford, even though they had a bit of a bounce early on when Pearson was appointed, I don't think they have enough about them to stay up, especially because Delafue is out for the season now. So that's what I think is going to happen. David. I, I see some looks of skepticism on your face. Map out what reality is going to be going forward. You know what? I th- I'm going to start it off by making probably the wildest take possible. And I think that here it is. You probably all disagree with this, but I think Liverpool are going to win the title. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I see that coming. <laughs> no, seriously. I think, I, I, I think Watford are going to pull away. Um, I, I, don't, I, I think actually they've, they've turned the corner under Pearson and I think they will continue to. And I think that I think the big relegation battle. I'm being biased, but I think West Ham will also pull away. I think the big relegation battle is going to be between Brighton and Bournemouth. I think Villa and Norwich are both going to go down. So that, that's where I'm seeing. Um, that's what, that's something that I'm seeing there. I think Everton are going to have a bit of a turn of form, and I'd expect them to crash into the top half of the table. And who knows? Who knows? But they're only they're only I think six points off of Sheffield yeah. United, so they could make a late run themselves. But I'm expecting to see a little bit better from them. And I am going to, yeah, I, I, think, I think what Harshal said is probably fair. I think, uh, I think Chelsea probably will make the top four. But at the same time, I'm going to sit on the fence and say it wouldn't surprise me to see United squeeze it in maybe on the last game of the season. All right. Well, let me give you my sense. First of all, I think soft tissue injuries and getting teams to click are going to lead to some crazy runs and some stunning falls. Um, I do think that Liverpool and Man City are going to cruise along. I do think that Leicester is going to stay in their slipstream, though I think they're going to have some bumps along the way. Um, But the reason why I think they're going to stay in the slipstream is I think Man U is going to fall out of Champions League contention. I think the Pogba-Brunes midfield isn't going to quite gel yet this season. Uh, It's going to feel like they've underperformed. They'll watch out for them next season. Um, I think that Chelsea underperforms despite the gallant efforts of Giroud, who we will have for another year. Uh, Though it breaks my heart if Timo comes in and, and takes his spot. Giroud always seems to get the short stick from those London clubs. Uh, for some reason. Um, I think uh, Sheffield United will move up the the table, but slip just short of Champions League uh, success, largely because I think the Wolves are going to quietly sneak in there and pip the final spot in the last two weeks of the season. As far as re- relegation goes, I think that Norwich goes on a huge tear and they actually start delivering goals that they should have been versus their expected goals. 
I think the mighty cherries end up going on the right side of the line. And I also think that Brighton, with their analytics and combination and transparency, uh, end up um, squeaking through, which means our friends at Watford, (laughs) Aston, and West Ham end up in the relegation zone. So um, that's my take on what's going to happen this season. What are y'all's thoughts on that? David, you're not going to say anything about it. <laughs> I'll say this, Chris. I think your logic is flawed because if you think Norwich are going to, um, let's say, overturn their expected points deficit, then you've got to say the exact same thing for Watford and West Ham and Brighton. All those I got teams. one word for you. <laughs> you Pookie. Underperformed Pookie. I got one word. He's going on fire. He is going on fire. And admittedly, there's a perhaps an emotional quotient to my 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 piece on that. But I absolutely love their style of play, and I love their saying, "We're going to be who we are. This is our uh, authentic identity, and we are who we are. Go up or go down." I got to respect that in 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 the 21st century. David, you're going to have to play Norwich away. So if Pookie scores a hat trick, you owe Chris a beer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't see to be fair, goal scoring run. To be it. fair, I think Pookie has been was playing the second half of the season with an injury. He had a toe injury. Um, he is fully fit now. So I mean, I don't know. He could go back to the form where he, in the first, I think, couple of months of the season. You don't know, but I it, think, as Chris said, it's just emotional where you they play a really attacking style of football, so you want them to do well. So, let's see. I think Brighton, Brighton have been making the biggest noises out of all of the teams on the bottom in terms of yeah. wanting to not restart. I know West Ham haven't been great either, but I think a lot of that is down to Brighton's just horrendous form for uh, some time now. Now, I know we said that form will go out of the, the window, but they've still got to play Liverpool. they still got to play Man City. They've still got to play Arsenal. They've still got to play Leicester. They've still got to play Manchester United. Wow. I think they are going to really struggle. And I hate to say it because... Uh, you know, I, I like Brighton, I like Graham yeah. Potter, but I think they're going to yeah. get pulled in in a big way to the relegation battle. All right. I will I will amend my thoughts and maybe West Ham, that <laughs> London club might be able to squeak back in. With that, I hope so. Uh, that oh, easy? Goodness, Chris, so. you changed your mind that easy, if, huh? If well, only the actual relegation that, battle was decided, you know, on the basis of... That, that is a murderer's row of, of talent of teams are going to have to play. That's... That's almost an automatic five out of nine <laughs> loss there. So we shall see. Hey, guys, I love the conversation we, we had today. We've got to wrap this up here. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to thank Total Football Analysis. They are the world's largest open source soccer analyst community. Please visit www.totalfootballanalysis.com. Join us on our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.